I live in a town called Sutton in the Eastern Townships, which is about an hour and a half east of Montreal in Canada. This is Ali Monk. Real name Alistair, which no one can pronounce or spell. Today, Ali lives and works in Montreal, but he grew up across the Atlantic. Some people might debate whether I have actually grown up, but let's just say uh, my, my early beginnings were in the UK on the south coast, sort of in the middle at the bottom in a village called Feltham, uh, living by the sea. It's only known for one thing, which is the hottest recorded temperature in the UK. Ali has moved to a different continent, but it turns out that temperature still plays a central role in what he does for a living. Because Ali helps people grow plants. Lots of plants. Food plants. In fact, if his company succeeds, the entire world of farming could change. And in a hot climate, that could be exactly what the world needs. This is Earning Curve, a podcast about business in Canada from Interact and Gimlet Creative. I'm Michelle Romano. No one builds a business on their own. On each episode of the show, we're meeting entrepreneurs like Ali and listening in on their conversation with founders who've struck business gold. Today, how can technology resolve some of our thorniest problems? Ali Monk's harnessing the 21st century power of artificial intelligence to lead a new agriculture revolution. It could ultimately remake our relationship with food and farming. Later, he'll connect with another visionary entrepreneur, this one in Toronto, who is using tech to uproot a different essential industry. Mike Serbinas leads League, a firm that is using software to change how companies offer and improve benefits to their workers. Mike has been all over the tech space. He's worked with Elon Musk, and he's gone head-to-head with Amazon. We'll hear from him in a bit. But right now, back to Ali Monk and his roots as a first-time founder. Before moving out from home, business was my dad, you know, coming back at uh, 5.30 every day after running a, a sports complex, which was part of the local council. So think of his role as more of a work-for-the-government-style occupation and my mum being a teacher. So again, you know, government worker sort of mentality, working for the pension. On my uncle's side, who I'm very close with, he had always been entrepreneurial and I, through university, would visit with him and see him sort of building his own business and client base and having a completely different outlook on work-life balance and not necessarily working for the man, but working for himself. Ali left the UK after university, and he began backpacking around Canada, Toronto, Lake Louise, but he ultimately found himself in Montreal. He needed a job. Being an Anglophone in the province of Quebec, whose French is pretty terrible, um, I was drawn into sales and marketing. So I literally started as a phone sales guy in any job that would hire me, um, and then just by chance, I ended up being recruited at a, a startup just before the dot-com bubble burst. So I started in 1999 and basically went from being the top salesperson in the company to sales training to get other people to do what I could do to starting a business development department and building a team around me. And that then sort of bled into creating partnerships and, and new revenue streams with new products for the company. So I sort of made my bones, if you like, over uh, a five-year span. That was the first taste of 
high technology, fast paced company going from 10 people to I think around 300 in about 24 months and getting a, a real sort of hands-on uh, taste for what that looked like traveling around, you know, North America with the CEO and running at a hundred miles an hour. While I was working in Montreal, I bought a, a cottage, basically a chalet in the Eastern townships. And I would go there uh, on the weekends to spend time with my son. We love the area. So we said, eventually, let's just stop living in the city. We'll make a, a life for ourselves in the country. And because of that, I became a business development consultant with remote clients. And instead of you know, staring at my own walls within the house, I thought it'd be a much better idea to start a co-working space with somebody else. Give me a good excuse not to do the housework. While in that co-working space, Ali was spending time with an acquaintance named Raman. He would walk in with a large box of, of electronics and wires and sit in the corner and sort of mutter away at himself. Raman had a problem. Well, to begin with, I was suspicious he was building a bomb. Not that kind of problem. Raman had a problem with his plants. Every time he would try and, you know, take a, a, a long break or a vacation with his girlfriend and kids, you know, his plants would die because he could not find someone to properly look after them while he was away. It's an issue most of us have faced. The difference is that Raman is an engineer. So he developed a very rudimentary few pieces of hardware that he could then control and, and view what was going on through his smartphone. I got it pretty quickly as to the value. And then he showed me the, the software interface and I thought it was absolutely ghastly. He challenged me if I thought I knew so much, you know, what would I do with the company? How would I do it? And uh, yeah, we, we ended up saying, okay, well, our, our first objective is, can we build some of these units, sell them to some other indoor farmers? And our first, you know, real goal was not to take over the world. It was, could we pay our mortgage with this? This was in 2016. Ali and Raman took their idea and submitted it to an accelerator in Montreal called Founder Fuel. We very nonchalantly turned up for interviews. We didn't realize that we were actually fairly lucky to even get an interview. We thought everybody gets interviewed. Turned out that 600 companies applied for six spaces in the program, and we were one of the six that was, uh, that was chosen. They called the company Motorleaf, after the English rock band Motorhead. And Founder Fuel invested in Raman's box of wires to the tune of $100,000. Which at that time we thought was like the biggest, <laughs> the biggest accomplishment ever. Um, little did we know how that doesn't actually go very far when you're building hardware and software. Which is why they strategically located their first office in the back of a local pub. There's worse places to work, right? You've got um, lovely bar staff just peeking around the corner, asking if you're okay, would you like a pint? Um, you've got a nice beer garden, you don't have to sit inside. And you really knew that you were on that beginning of the adventure. It's sort of like the uh, you know Lord of the Rings where they, they, they walk out of their village and something's about to start. And that was kind of how it felt. What started was two years of intense growth and multiple pivots. Motorlease's original intent was to help small-scale growers maintain their plants. But they quickly realized that their mix of modular hardware and artificial intelligence software could help predict how much food a greenhouse might be able to produce in a given season, far more accurately than human scientists. It sounds a little complicated, and it is, but the underlying breakthrough is huge. People who grow edible plants have to sell their products before they're actually fully mature. So every year they have to estimate how much they'll have. 
But that's as much of an art as a science and is filled with room for error. Today, motor lease technology is helping cut that very expensive air rate by more than half for greenhouse growers who are using their system. Our vision is pretty firm in that eventually, moving forward, these large industrial-sized greenhouses will want to be able to automate more and more and more of what they do based upon data, based upon proven algorithms that always make better decisions than only a human. Ancient agriculture know-how, married to the precision of 21st century tech, sounds like a game changer, right? We assumed, my goodness, as soon as this is proven, this changes the business for a greenhouse, you know, almost overnight. That was a kind of naive assumption. And the reason being is that it's so unbelievable, and I don't mean good, I mean, they don't believe it's possible, that there is a massive learning curve that we have to walk them through So the level of skepticism for doing something that is like magic to them is incredibly high, even if the payoff is huge. So we're a little bit of a victim of the uniqueness and the unbelievableness, if you like, of our product. So we've had to walk them, you know, hand in hand down that road by making sure we can install our technology in their facility, tracking its progress. And then there's that aha moment where they kind of blink a few times and say, okay, I never thought you could do this, and you can. That isn't what an investor wants to hear, because an investor wants to hear that you can just knock out sales left, right, and center. So while the technology is still in its infancy, the promise is sky high. Today, Motorleaf has raised more than three and a half million in funding. There's as much opportunity as there is food to be grown. At the moment, we're focused primarily on commercial greenhouses. So wherever you grow food in a controlled environment is a market for us. We're focused mostly on North America and Europe, but we've already got customer in Japan, uh, New Zealand, Mexico, South Africa. So yeah, I mean, it's, it is definitely a global play. Even Ali's kids are gardeners. Yeah, we grow uh, 10, 12 different crops in our little garden. And uh, the kids, you know, they get involved in choosing what we grow and and harvesting it when it's ready. So are they working with Motorleaf yet? (laughs) Can't make it too easy for them. If you expand the vision out to the horizon, Motorleaf could be part of the connected home of the future. Imagine a world of smart kitchens where each of us has a robot-assisted green thumb, making something incredibly complex, simple, and tasty. Up next, we'll meet Mike Serbinas. Mike has made a whole career of taking on new and disruptive challenges. So he and Ali will talk more about what it's like to be first at the party and how failure can be more of a motivator than success. That's coming up after the break. Hi, I'm Mike Serbinas, founder and CEO of League. For more than a decade, Mike Serbinas was competing head-to-head with the world's biggest giant, Amazon. He was the founder of Kobo, a company that manufactured the only global competitor to the Kindle. In just a few years, he was selling e-readers in 190 countries to more than 20 million customers. His resume prior to Kobo is equally impressive. As a young man, he tinkered with something called quantum cryptography. 
He also founded and sold one of the earliest cloud storage companies. He worked on search engine technology with Tesla founder Elon Musk at a company that was eventually sold to AltaVista. Today, he's using his unique mix of software, hardware, and human service experience to address the brokenness of the healthcare system. His latest company is called League. It's a digital platform meant to serve as a one-stop shop for benefits, spending accounts, workplace health services, booking and payments. And it pretty much happened by accident. Yeah, no, I never really dreamed about being an insurance broker. Uh, it was absolutely... <laughs> that wasn't what you went home to mom no, and dad, and you're no. like, I can't wait. It's the bottom of the list, in fact. <laughs> I was planning the summer of Mike. We had just sold uh, our previous company. Kobo, I'd, yeah. Yeah, Kobo, and I'd done the, you know, the two years tour of duty. Yeah. We grew, like we doubled and we doubled again. Yeah. And then I was just ready for something else. And uh, I was randomly invited to some event in L.A. Mm -hmm. And it's this L.A. Children's Hospital. And yeah. it's this talk about the future of medicine. Mm -hmm. And all I could think was, this is amazing. This is like the Star Trek-like future that we've all been waiting for. But I don't think it's that real. Because for me, I, I lived in California for about 10 years. Mm -hmm. I grew up here in, uh, just outside of Toronto and Hamilton. My experience with healthcare is that it generally sucks. The yeah. experience is like a thousand years old. It's out of touch with what I need. And most of us actually get it through our companies or get yep. access through benefits. And that is even more painful. Yeah. So I thought, you know what? In the future, this is all going to be different. And yeah. it's going to be about me, the consumer, personalized, preventative, digital, always on. Yeah. We started the company. We learned, hey, most people think about this really in the lens or through the lens of insurance. Yeah. You look at insurance, it gets more expensive every year. You get less and everyone hates the experience. So totally. we thought, this is perfect. Let's go and transform this world. So you're taking on something very ambitious here. <laughs> I you know what? The, the whole selling ebooks thing, pretty easy compared to this. Yeah. Uh, this is like fraught with regulation. Yeah. I mean, it was the cornerstone of this previous U.S. election. Yeah. It's what's driving the budgets that drive the taxes that we all pay. Totally. Right? And it's what's costing employers a ton of money. Yeah. So real big issue. So, Ali, another big issue, and a really old one, is being able to predict how much food a given farm or greenhouse is able to produce. Remind us again how Motorleaf tackles that. What Motorleaf does is we think that machines should be telling humans the best things to do to get the best repeatable, predictable, and profitable results within a greenhouse. Agronomist AI is our software that is like a virtual agronomist who can give you all of those calculations that your brain could never handle by yourself. A virtual agronomist. I like that. And does the AI software work in tandem with human scientists or the farmer's element, or does it really replace them altogether? In tandem. It is like uh, saying, well, we used to do math with an abacus and now we've got a super duper calculator. So the aim is not to replace the agronomist. It's to just give them the best data to make their own decisions. But we do see certain tasks that an agronomist has to do in a in a greenhouse slowly being replaced so they can focus on other things because it's not just about growing plants you're running a business imagine you've got a, a business that does a hundred million dollars a year revenue and you're pre-selling your produce have you got enough don't know is it the right quality not sure <laughs> does, it, does it look okay well it did last time but next week <laughs> it might it taste not okay <laughs> does it taste okay yeah yeah and that, it's it's mad it's absolutely mad and that's the sort of future of our food production because of obviously 
all the things that are going on in the world for global warming and climate change, etc. There's a very, very serious need for more food, better quality, locally produced. So it is going to be in a controlled environment that we see that that uptake. Mike, you have a lot of experience with growth and competition. You know, you started at NASA and then have, you know, background in startups from Docspace to Zip2 with Elon Musk and then your time at Kobo. You were the first mover when Kobo started. And then how did you stay competitive as people, you know, piled onto that industry? Yeah, so that's a great example. Uh, and I, I learned I learned a ton in that, in that company. I mean, yeah. it was so much fun. The team was amazing. We had a blast. And we realized, wow. We can be the, and I, I love this, I use this all the time, that we can be the elephant or the fly here, Yeah. right? We can be the technology company that enables eBooks and just do it in Canada and that would be neat. Yeah. We're like a tool provider, cute. right? <laughs> Very cute. Yeah. Um, or we can just try to be, you know, the Netflix of the category. Yeah. And my view was there, there was going to be, you know, Apple was going to be in it because they had to be in it. Google yeah. was going to be in it because they had to be in it. Amazon was absolutely going to be in it and serious about it, but yeah. there was room for a pure play, a Netflix or a Spotify. Yeah. So we thought, let's build that and let's be the elephant. And we went for it. And I mean, we cranked out 192 countries and all of a sudden we're doing like, you know, hundreds of millions in sales and yeah. everything was just rolling and it was, it was amazing. It's a great story. So, you know, both of you... Um, as two people growing companies with aspirations for really the greater good and for the benefit of everyone, right? To take on healthcare and to take on agriculture. What have been the challenges? And like, I mean, let's start with you, Mike. How how did you convince kind of these businesses early on to adopt either a new form of insurance or a new form of treating uh, their employees in, in their healthcare? And how did you kind of attack that going in at the beginning? Yeah, so I would say, you know, there was no lightning rod moment, right? Yeah. For me, this is like always a relentless pursuit of viability. <laughs> <laughs> figure it out to survive. You know, we started selling to people we knew, mm -hmm. right? And we sold to people that would get that a tech solution to this crummy old world experience. Yeah. Is the obvious way to offer, uh, you know, benefits and health insurance to employees. Yeah. So we went to tech companies, small tech companies, and they were like, dude, can you really do this? Yeah. Uh, and we said, no, no, <laughs> we've figured it out. We've got the insurance company behind us. We've got some unusual investors in our a round, like we brought in corporate uh, venture, really yeah. which, you know, legitimized us because it was mm -hmm. the biggest bank and the biggest insurance company. Yeah. And, you know, there's regulatory bodies, yeah. we licensed by province, by state, country, the company, individuals. So we did all of that. Yeah. And then we started with super serving a very particular kind of customer, small tech, yeah. young demographic, and they got it. And we made a ton of mistakes, and totally. all of those customers would tell you that. Uh, but we but listened. But it's what got the flywheel started, yeah. right? It's this the small group of customers right. that that allow you to kind of figure out, you know, how broken what you have is, and right. then how to fix it with uh, with at least some patience. And so, Ali, like, how did you think about going to find your first customers? I mean, there's massive agriculture players. There's also, you know, small players. Like, how did you how did you think about this and and make yourself legitimate? I mean, a, a lot of people had probably never heard of the big super duper calculator that could tell you how to do their job better. Than than they could. Yeah, so absolutely true story. And I hope Scott, my co-founder, doesn't mind me saying this, but Scott was with me at a trade show. So we were there with our booth trying to drum up interest in what we were doing. Nobody knew who we were. Up walks a guy who's managing one of the largest greenhouses in North America. He talks to us and he says, yeah, I really like your software and uh, it looks really interesting and I can see a value for it. But can you predict my yield? Because that's that's really important to what me. What I'm interested in, yeah. 
Scott, without skipping a beat, just says, yeah, I'm pretty sure we could do that. I'm about to kick him in the leg because, you know, you can't make promises unless you, you're really confident you can follow through. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so he's looking at, at Victor saying, yeah, yeah, we can, we can do that. I'm pretty sure we can do that. So Victor says, right, I'll, uh, I'll give you access to my greenhouse. You can practically move in if you want. I'll give you, I'll give you access to what you, you need. I think this is the future of the industry. Great, we say, shake his hand. Then Victor walks away and I look at Scott and go, you better know what you're talking about because this is a hell of a gamble. Mm -hmm. He says, yeah, yeah, we can do it. We can do it. We didn't know that we could do it, right? And certainly when you do something once doesn't mean that you can build a company on it. So, so and that was your very first customer? That was the first very large commercial greenhouse that we built yield prediction for. We had smaller customers where we had software and hardware that would automate their right. um, their indoor farm, but we can handle indoor farms and we can go right up to you know, thousands of acres of, of greenhouse. But how much scrambling was that? I mean, you it sounds like there was no yield prediction built. And so, you know, Scott says this and then you go back and you just build it overnight. Never let facts get in the way of a good story. Correct. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Yeah, it certainly wasn't overnight. Yeah, I mean, it, it took us, uh, I'm trying to think how many months, probably close to a year to get the first version. And there's, you know, there's 2 million different variations of that algorithm that have been tested. As everyone could probably attest to, being a, a startup CEO sounds all glamorous and you have all of these great success stories out there, but mostly it's just really hard work and, and pretty unthankful work, I guess you could say. But there are those like glimmering moments that you'll always remember and one of them was when we're on the phone with Victor after we've deployed this after a, a number of uh, uh, months and we said to him Vic how how do we know that when we give you the yield prediction number your growers aren't accessing that and then kind of cheating in their yield prediction because obviously we compare against what the, the human can do right mm -hmm. and Victor very casually just says well what are you talking about we're not doing yield prediction anymore you guys smashed our accuracy why bother it takes you know nearly three days of our time to do it every week and then there was just this silent moment on the phone yeah. and all the ai guys are looking at each other going oh my god because we thought it was going to take years before they would stop doing what they've been doing for decades and trust this you know magic box as it were that was like such a validation that poof, then we're you know jumping for joy yeah yeah. So, Mike, you were nodding along there. A lot of... Uh... Yeah, zero, hero, yeah. zero, zero, hero. It's like a lot of zero with glimpses of hero. Yeah. That's the startup life, uh, the startup CEO life. And so what keeps you going? Is it the excitement to disrupt something? Is it just living for the hero moments? What I grew to love about the whole experience, it blends two things that I really love. So puzzles and teams, right? Yeah. So I was uh, an athlete growing up and I played different sports. You can't win alone. I love that feeling of, you know, being on a team and a team that can win. Winning feels good, but I also think for entrepreneurs, losing is just such a defeat. Like the pain right. of like being like, man, I put everything into this. And it's sometimes I think I'm like, Michelle, are you there to win or are you there to just like, I just hate the feeling and, of losing. And you know, you've met a lot of entrepreneurs that yeah. either don't make it or they give up or yeah. it's too tough, right? You enter that stage and every startup has it, this yeah. pit of despair. Totally. And it is just sadness for a long time. <laughs> and nothing you do really seems to work. And yeah. everything seems like it's incrementally taking you nowhere. Yeah. And a lot of people quit. If you stay true of the mission yeah. and the why to what you're doing is powerful enough and the team is similarly sharing in that belief and the why, you stick it out and eventually you see some light. 
it's great to not be in the pit of despair, but every I think every entrepreneur has to go through it. Yeah, yeah. Ali, what do you think? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I think what keeps me going more than anything else is the is the goal at the end to come out of this better off for the family, and then tandem with that is the team that we've built over the last eighteen months or so. We're up to about twenty people, and for us, that's still like, oh my god, we're twenty people here. You know? So. There's a lot more at stake now than when it was just me and a couple of co-founders in the back of a pub thinking this could be a, a really good idea. So, Right now, you guys are kind of the first mover in the egg space, which is very similar to where you were in Kobo. Like, Mike, what's your advice for Ali here? Like, how does he maintain that? Do you think about that? Do you worry about that? Or you just go every day and execute and kind of ignore what's happening around you? Yeah. So first thing I'd say is I have a lot of respect for Ali's situation, having been there. Uh, what do I think, you mm-hmm. know, is for a first time entrepreneur, I kind of always had this feeling and I don't know where I got it, but it's the, there's someone out there, at yeah. least one that's doing what we're doing and cares the same way about it, that has the same mission, same vision, you know, same team, and they're just ahead yeah. and they're better. And mm-hmm. that makes me nervous. I actually think that that sort of thought experiment is a good thing to do all the time. Yeah, You're always thinking ahead. You yeah. have to be, because everybody needs to know. Those 20 people that mm-hmm. Ali describes in his office that are doing stuff, Yeah, they're doing stuff based on a form of direction that's a concept, an idea in their heads. Yeah, But it's going to drift, right? A customer's going to come in and a customer's going to go away. They're going to win stuff, lose stuff, create yeah. a new thing, learn something new. Mm-hmm. And so the idea changes and people start to drift apart. And so the job of the leader beyond worrying about the foot that's about to step on you and like imagining who that competitor is, is, okay, where are we going next? And continue to push that envelope. And I've seen that with so many successful people. It's just like, if they can channel that into like the right level of like, this is what I'm scared of, but this is how I'm going to be proactive. Like people can keep going. So I don't know, Ali, what do you, what do you think about that? Is that the strategy to make sure you guys kind of stay ahead? Yeah, that's a big part of it. And I think uh, what I'm very lucky in having and i would say if there's anybody listening to this that is either about to start a company or is in the (laughs) throes of the first you know six months or so is get your advisors picked really well because especially if you're a first-time ceo the the things that that mike mentioned don't just naturally pop into your head unless you've perhaps done this before so i i lean on some really top-notch advisors there's a gentleman by the name of uh, kerry goldwax out of montreal he beats me up on a daily basis and then pats me down and walks off that's that and repeat right so you say you're an idiot for doing it that way or you really haven't thought about doing that pats me down says but you're doing a good job i'll see you tomorrow (laughs) yeah so Ali, you know, you think of yourself as a uniquely Canadian company. I know both Mike and I have been very passionate about coming back um, with lots of opportunities to to grow and sell companies um, in the U.S. and internationally, but have, have chosen to do so here. Um, so, you know, Mike, how have you thought about this? How do you think about, you know, Canada as being a competitive advantage and, and why did you make those choices? Truthfully, I came back because I met my wife and we, you know, we're so nerdy. We did a spreadsheet and Toronto won the spreadsheet wars and, and we came back and she was, uh, and still is. Spreadsheet wars. Yeah. Canada wanted a spreadsheet. That means on a lot of dimensions we won. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's true. Well, listen, it's, and it's what we market today in terms of attracting talent here, um, you know, quality of life and, uh, Mm -hmm. healthcare and, uh, a range of other things, safety. Yeah. I mean, Toronto is an amazing place. Yeah. However, even when I moved back, mm-hmm. which is now over 12 years ago, the tech sector here was like, eh, yeah. not exciting, right? Pretty sleepy. Not exciting. 
Anyways, fast forwarding through the whole Kobo experience, like the community and the environment here totally changed. We have talent Mm -hmm. and the talent now is not only, oh, tons of students coming out of Waterloo and U of T, it's, you know, what we're talking about with Ali's company. It's AI, machine learning. So we've got a great thing going here. And and it's permeated not just investors and accelerators and incubators and, you know, engineering schools, you know, but like families talk about it at dinner tables and yeah. what they want for their kids, mm-hmm. right? They want them to, you know, pursue STEM and engineering and, yeah. you know, get into this tech boom that's happening. Mm-hmm. So I, um, yeah, I guess I kind of wear the flag. But I do think there was a really critical moment in the last 20 years where the entrepreneurs became the new rock stars. And that hopefully will encourage an extraordinary amount of talent that would have gone into finance and moving money and doing all sorts of things into actually building yeah. and creation, which is which is better for all of our economies. In the, nobody, in the w- nobody went to MBA school 20 years ago and said, I want to be a tech entrepreneur. Nobody. You know, schools are pumping out entrepreneurs yeah. that, uh, you know, want to go and create the next big Google or Facebook or Uber. Yeah. Ali, are you excited to be in Canada? And, and I, you have a very unique perspective because you didn't also grow up here. Exactly. So from my point of view, I'm an immigrant, right? I definitely feel a very large debt of, of gratitude to just the opportunities that I've been given living here. And I don't say that lightly as a, as a soundbite mm-hmm. at all. That's one reason why I'm very comfortable with the company planning to stay here. On a more practical level, there's no... AI hub in the world for agriculture. Mm-hmm. But guess what? Yes, there is, because it's Motorleaf. That's the way I'm going to be thinking about our company moving forward. So if we have a, a humongous AI hub in Montreal, it kind of makes sense that the agricultural AI hub should be within that ecosystem. And also, if we were to do a comparison with uh, you know, a company moving to the US versus Canada, this might sound a bit cheeky, but when I travel to the US, which is pretty often... I never really hear very much positive comments about immigrants. Our company has at least five, possibly six now different nationalities out of a group of 20. So we've got Filipino, Iranian, Scottish, African, and US. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that we think about things, even if it's not in our realm of expertise, is super interesting. There's that. And then also we've got 50% female employees, which brings... You know, it's it's the only company I've worked at with with that mix, and I think that's a, an advantage too because we try and go for the no ego mantra, and I think that's probably a an easier mindset to have when you've got a nice mix of male female, whereas males seem to be generally speaking just a little bit more, um, you know, male mm-hmm. <laughs> about about certain things. So um, I appreciate that with my team. I think the immigration point is a big one. So when you think about building a global enterprise mm-hmm. from Toronto. What's important? It's important to have those diverse cultures and languages yeah. uh, available to you here. And you can't, you don't build really anything in Canada for just the Canadian market. No, you can't. I mean, you we're can't. 2% of the global market. You, so, you only have a company so big. If you're... De facto, you just think about it from a yeah. code standpoint. De facto, every piece of software that gets built here yeah. is already built for multiple countries. Mm-hmm. That is not true of friends of mine that are south of the border. Totally. They're happy happy to build their software and go deep into that product yeah. experience with just the US in mind because the market's so big. I've spent time working on both sides of the border too and find this fascinating. Being based in Canada forces you to have a wider lens and makes you think differently about how you scale and sell your product. 
It's a major cultural difference, one with deep implications for how we work and who we serve. I love that both Mike and Allie acquired their first big customers and legitimized their business by taking huge bets and doubling down on their confidence in their products. Whether you're in the tech space or not, you need these partners to help you scale while you keep one eye on the future or your next pivot. As Canadian companies, League and Motorleaf are already preparing solutions that will be worldwide in scope. From local roots to global fruits, that's really exciting. This is Earning Curve from Interact and Gimlet Creative with additional production by Transmitter Media. If you're enjoying the show, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts so others can find us too. I'm Michelle Romano. Thanks for listening.